Hey, folks, welcome to the Encuentros Latinx podcast, where we explore stories of spirituality, identity, and culture from Latinx perspectives. My name is Taylor Amaj. I'm an author and editor, and I'm Puerto Rican. This podcast is a project of Encuentros Latinx, an LGBTQ ministry in the United Church of Christ. Today's episode is the first of what will hopefully be several episodes beautifully combining two areas of my life, my work on this podcast and my work as an author. My guest is Lauren Davila, editor of many anthologies, including two Latinx anthologies coming out this fall. I have a fantasy short story in one of those anthologies. So as we get closer to publication, I'm hoping to bring you some of the other Latinx authors I'm being published with in future episodes. Lauren and I have a wonderful conversation about fiction anthologies as community storytelling spaces and why she enjoys working on them. We also talk about the weird things that happen at Christian colleges and, briefly, whether you can still be Mexican and not like corn. All Latinx experiences are valid here, so let's get right into this encuentro. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Can you introduce yourself by giving us your name and pronouns? Sure. My name is Lauren T. Davila, and I go by she, her, hers. Amazing. And what country or countries do you and your family come from? So I was born and raised in California, United States, California. Mm -hmm. Um, But my family comes from Mexico, specifically Chihuahua, Mexico. Awesome. And what's a good memory that you have um, about the culture you were raised in or any other part of your growing up where you live? Yeah, so it's it's really interesting because I wasn't so specifically culturally tied. Like I've never visited Mexico, even though obviously I'm in Southern California. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty close. I've never really visited Mexico. Uh, Quite a lot of my family actually is sort of Chihuahua, Mexico, but also El Paso, Texas. So I've also never visited Texas. Mm -hmm. So I'm a little bit distanced, which is really interesting. But um, so much of my memories probably come from just like when I was younger, being with my uh, great grandparents who were still alive. And they were the ones that had come from Chihuahua and um, El Paso and um, visiting them. They lived in Hesperia. And so my um, great grandfather, I thought though, was the one who he, you know, used to grow fruit in his backyard and he always wear these like big cowboy hats and, and just like really loved being in nature and being around um, anything of the outdoors. He loved the desert and, and just the heat, which, you know, very much a, a California experience. But I think for me, I guess a lot of it is really tied to like my memories of my family um, in terms of, of my specific culture. Do you remember what kind of fruit that was grown in the farm? I personally just always remember the watermelon. Like, okay, here's the interesting thing is like, I hate oranges, which I know is just like (laughs) big gasp for like a Mexican girl from California. Like that shouldn't happen. But like, I just hate to some oranges. So I always remember he would try to get me to try oranges. And I would always be like, this is like the worst thing I've ever tasted. Absolutely impossible. But he would always do watermelon. Like that was always something that I really, really remember. So I love watermelon always. It's like my fruit of choice, if possible. So it definitely comes from him. 
That's hilarious because literally before we started recording this, I was I just ate dinner and I had an orange for dessert. And so actually my fingers still smell like oranges. And um, I, I for one, cannot abide by the orange blasphemy. No, I'm joking. (laughs) (laughs) No, like, and it's like, I can't even do like orange, like, like creamsicles, like orange candies, like anything that has that flavor. I just can't do and corn. I'm just going to like come right. Corn. I I just, it's horrible. I should just get (laughs) Wait, wait, you're a Mexican, Uh Mexican girl and Uh you're not about corn. I'm, I'm a paleo bitch and I'm not about corn, but that's more of a health thing. (laughs) But like you're, you're Mexican and you're not about, I mean, like I just (laughs) like corn on the cob, like creamed corn. I mean, I could do corn tortillas, obviously that's Mm -hmm. totally fine. Popcorn I can do. I don't know. That was a little bit weirder. I feel like it's a little bit of a tangent, but yeah, corn. Corn and oranges. Those are my two, like, end-all, be-all no's for me. (laughs) Okay, so now everybody listening knows to to specifically send you a box only of corn and oranges. Yes, that's all I will accept. Yes, very, very, (laughs) very clear. So you you talked about this cultural distance that you've experienced, and that's a lot of my experience as well, and I think a lot of other people's experience. And so this term Latinx then – how do you experience that term? Is it something that you struggle with, something that you embrace? What does that language like evoke for you and how you understand yourself? Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely something that I think I struggle with. And I think part of it comes to the fact that like I don't speak Spanish fluently. Like I definitely am lighter skinned, which, you know, has its own colorist implications there. but. Um, on, you know, first glance and first appearance, like I definitely fit into sort of the more stereotypical, just like <laughs> California girl. And it's not necessarily something that even growing up, I, I realized was part of my experience. And maybe it is, you know, being from California, like there were so many people around me that sort of looked the same as me, had the same sort of family dynamics and and other things. So I think it wasn't until sort of I grew up and sort of started doing my own like research on implications related to, you know, race and and everything else in terms of ethnicity and implications in the United States that I really sort of started to understand where I was coming from and how maybe other people outside of Southern California would see and view me um, and sort of view my family, obviously. Like I'm the lightest out of my family, but um, the majority of my other family is definitely darker skinned Mexicans. And, and, you know, I understand that I've been privileged there, but um, seeing, you know, how my family members have been treated or um, experienced just life in, in general is something that I think I struggle with, but I, I've, I've tried to make myself a little bit more comfortable with like taking up space and, and knowing that yeah, I do have a valid voice and I try to use it to uplift as many other, other voices as possible beyond my own. But definitely something that I, I I definitely do still struggle with it. I don't think I'll ever not struggle with it. Yeah, I, I find myself in a pretty similar situation because like on the one hand, when I was first born, my baby pictures from about the first year of my life or so, I was not a white baby. Like you, you could not look at that child and say like, oh, that's a white baby. Absolutely not. But then as genes and phenotypes do, mm-hmm. it, it just it just shifted. 
And even my mom, my mom, when she was a really little girl, um, she was brown. And but now if you look at her, I mean, her her skin is like, you know, she's light. So, yeah, I, I also had all these different factors. Um, I didn't grow up speaking Spanish in the home. I only got U.S. public school Spanish, which did not help me much going to Puerto Rico and seeing my family and just all these other things that I sort of internalized this invalidation. And even to to this day, like what you said about how you kind of are trying to get more comfortable with like being in spaces and, and like taking up spaces because that's it's that whole imposter syndrome thing. And I think especially for those of us who are like whiter, lighter skin, that we have to understand the temptation of assimilation and how we can choose to assimilate. And then we can resist against that, which is great. But then also, on the other hand, I feel like those of us who are really aware of it and trying to be cognizant and respectful and and loving and uplifting also have that same struggle with like entering into any sort of BIPOC space and saying, should I really be in this space right now? I know like there are certain ways that I am more comfortable going into those spaces, but then there are other ways where I'm most likely just not going to go into those spaces because I'm still like, you know, like these, well, we'll talk about our, about the anthologies a little bit Mm -hmm. later on, but the way that they're being marketed as BIPOC anthologies, I'm like, okay, this is a, a, a situation where like I am in this space and this is a marketing label that is applying to something that I'm doing. And so it's okay. Um, but even still, there's a little bit of of weirdness there. And I, I've actually talked to some of the other anthology authors in a similar position too. And it's just not, we're not complaining about it at all. We're yeah. just like talking about how, how it's complex and how we want to both live into our identities and the fullness that they are, but then also be really, really cognizant of like what spaces we're really taking up and entering into. Yeah. And I think sort of going off that, like, I think it's so difficult because I feel like we often get like put into these little boxes in terms Mm -hmm. of like publishing and marketing. And like so much of it is just like when you only have like five or six words to give a pitch and it's Mm -hmm. just really, it's really, really difficult. And I feel like that's definitely like a systemic publishing issue that like we need to all be talking about within the next couple of years because Mm -hmm. so much of it is just like these quippy little like hashtag or a good read review or something and then that's all people know Mm -hmm. it from and it's like every writer contributor author editor agent is like so much more than just a hashtag yeah yeah oh publishing um (laughs) so many things if we only have the time to change everything yeah, yeah, for real. Well, I guess I guess we'll we can uh, get into it now that we're already sort of talking about it. Publishing. So, uh, you and I are both authors, and you specifically are. I believe that you should be bestowed the title the anthology queen because <laughs> you are at the helm of at least like five anthologies that I know of just seeing uh, your that, that you know of that yeah that know I know of, of. that's that's In, the insert, thing insert side eye emoji here yeah yeah <laughs> just try, trying to frame this for all of our like non-publishing uh, listeners here so Lauren what you what, what I've seen you do in the anthologies that you are are running is that you tend to go on to 
to Twitter and you say, hey, I'm accepting short story pitches for an anthology that has this theme or, or that theme. And you're also always specifically looking for BIPOC authors. And you read the these uh pitches and you decide what is going to go into it. And one of the things you did this for was, I don't even remember the dates, but you announced that you were soliciting submissions for um, two Latinx anthologies, Mm -hmm. specifically genre fiction. Genre fiction is it's things like science fiction, fantasy, uh, romance, horror, things like that. And you you said you want to do a adult anthology and a young adult anthology. And surprise, surprise, my podcast listeners, I've already mentioned this before, but I have a story coming out in one of these anthologies. So with all that said, Lauren, I'll let you take it away to give more details about these projects. Yeah. So it, it's really interesting because when I everybody always asks me, like, how did you get into this? Or like, how did you start off becoming an anthologist? And it's really funny because I kind of just like fell into it. Like I'd been reading a lot of anthologies in my MFA program. And I was just like reading all these amazing collections. And like, well, I was reading like a monster anthology and Dahlia Adler, who's a, who's a YA mm-hmm. author and editor has like some absolutely amazing anthologies out. And there was one that, that she published that was um, retellings of Edgar Allan Poe stories. And I ended up like teaching that one semester when I was teaching undergraduate um, literature. And like, my students loved it. Like I loved it. All my friends loved all of these anthologies. And I was like, why aren't there like mainstream? I guess like, Mm -hmm. like, that's like such a loaded word, but like, why aren't there more anthologies like feature specifically? And like, at the time I was like Latinx Mm -hmm. authors, like where I was like doing research and trying to find something. And I was like, where are all of our stories? And so I kind of had just like tweeted it on a, on a whim of like, you know, like I'd love to see something with, (laughs) like Latinx people in in sci-fi like I want like mermaids and like monsters and and space explorers and like anything possible and Mm -hmm. so there was just such a huge want for that and obviously like I was only on Twitter it's not everybody but there were a Mm -hmm. lot of people who were like yeah this is definitely something that we need and so it just kind of organically spanned from there and then the ball started rolling and I had more ideas and a couple of publishers had put out um, different calls for anthologies and it just sort of increased from there. So I'm doing those specific um, two Latinx anthologies. When I pitched the project originally, it was only one. And um, with the publishers that I decided to go with, we decided to split it into two just in terms of obviously, again, like what we're talking about, you know, publishing, marketing, mm-hmm. where it would go on a bookshelf in a, in a store. Um, so pushed those into a YA and an adult anthology for those. And then I have a BIPOC gothic horror anthology releasing actually in May. And then beyond that, I have a couple others that are coming out in 2023 that I haven't yet announced. And then I have about five others that I'm <laughs> behind the scenes, co-editing, gathering contributors for and working with. So mm-hmm. I think right now my total is at 10. I, I, I could be wrong though. <laughs> But it's a lot. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much fr- from this point forward, I am just going to, if I'm somewhere and there's an anthology and your name isn't on it, I'm going to just be very shocked. At, like, <laughs> I whether it's at like, a, I, could, I could be at a thrift store and the anthology could be like 20 years old and I'll be like, why isn't Lauren I should have had it published when I was right. like, right, right. Exactly. Been <laughs> exactly. Point of clarification um, for listeners who maybe 
feel a little bit lost with some of the terms that we're throwing out. I'm trying to keep this in mind because like I'm in the know and you're in the know trying to like explain the shop talk. But when we say young adult and adult, by adult, we don't mean, well, we don't exclusively or necessarily mean like erotic type of content, although it can include that content. What that specifically means is an adult story is targeted toward adult aged people. And then a young adult story is generally the target audience is going to be teenagers. And there's entire discourse about <laughs> mm-hmm. young adult that, you know, it, it's not, we, we don't have to get into, but that's generally what that means. I didn't want anybody listening to this and be like, what, adult? Like there's an, there's like erotic anthologies of, of, of whatever. And, and there are, but like, that's not, <laughs> that, that's not like only what we're talking yeah. about here. So what I think is, really cool. Just my experience being one of the authors in this anthology is how you made a private uh, discord for us to actually be able to interact and get to know each other and to really build this community. And I think that from this experience, one of the most powerful and fascinating things about anthologies is this idea of community storytelling. Not that our stories are interconnected, although some anthologies, the stories actually are interconnected, which is really cool, Mm -hmm. but these specific ones aren't. But I think that even a lot of a lot of UCC folks um, who may be listening, I'm sure that y'all have been to community storytelling types of panels and events, especially BIPOC folk. I know that we have those types of settings. We've had those in different conferences, although, you know, maybe it's a, that type of storytelling is very like personal, uh, like things that actually happened to you. Whereas this, we're talking about like fiction and things that can't happen at all. But the beautiful thing about speculative fiction is that the speculative element can really um, highlight real things that people are going through. Yeah. And I don't want to like shoehorn, obviously, like Latinx stories into magical realism, but mm-hmm. it is something that like I've noticed like a lot of the stories that are in, I specifically like just talking between us two, like in our mm-hmm. anthologies that we're working mm-hmm. on, the Latinx ones, like so many of them like are very like contemporary grounded stories, like a surrealist magical realism element, which I think is something that is pretty specific to BIPOC spaces because mm-hmm. a lot of the times that's just sort of how we interpret and view the world of like, this is our experience. This is like our family and our culture and our background and our languages and, you know, uh, memories and, you know, and just everything customs. Mm-hmm. And then let's just like add a little bit of magic in it and like see what happens. And I think that that's, that's the thing that's been really interesting to see is like how that experience translates like through different cultures and races and obviously a lot of the other anthologies that I'm working on um, aren't just Latinx, but it definitely is something that is parallel. Like that like fable fairy tale around the campfire story aspect that seems to sort of be relevant throughout all of our experiences. Yeah. It's funny because, well, the whole definition of magical realism is constantly shifting and I, I've delved into some of the discourse a little bit, but not too much. But then what you just said about how it just comes from the way, like just how we grew up in different aspects of of our cultures, like even as culturally distanced as I was and as I felt, I remember like I have 
kind of weird stories like that from my mom's side of the family, the Boricua mm-hmm. side of my of my family, where it's just like, for example, my my abuela, she had this green parrot named Lori. And I don't know how long she had that parrot for. It was a really, really long time. We go to her house in in San Juan when she still lived in her house. And, you know, there was the parrot out on its little it, a little cage in, in the porch. And seriously, this is just about how it happened or, or how I remember it happening. I don't know if the timing was exactly this, but it was something like the parrot who had been around forever died. And then three weeks later, either Abuela died or she had to like finally move out of that house that she'd been in her whole life. And like, I don't know, that is just something out of a 20th century magical realism novel. Because oh, I've like, I feel like I've read that, right? But the the thing is, it's it's like, well, that's just something that happened in in the family. It's not it's not even necessarily that like a like an exaggeration or extra yeah. um, speculation on, you know, inserting a fantasy element. It's just, oh, that's how it that's yeah. how it happened. That's stuff that just goes on. The, the the spiritual um spiritual things especially just are so much more normalized it, it seems where it's it, it can sometimes seem a little bit weird to call some of that speculative in some cases. Yeah. I don't know. And that's the thing I just like I think that that's sort of the interesting thing is that like we grow up hearing these like stories and experiences and I think like our relatives also like okay I don't want to say like our because I don't want to speak for your experience like my relatives just will like say things and they're like yeah that's just like what happened and you're just like I mean yeah of course like spiritual magical whatever things just occur Mm -hmm. and it's it's not like something that is like a huge thing it's just like everybody in the family knows or you know friends or cousins or just whatever and -hmm. it's just something that seems like completely normalized and then until you go (laughs) <laughs> to like other people and start taking these stories like oh my god what is happening what do you, you aren't you gonna and it was it's not something that's like super sh- i guess it is strange but it's not like out of the ordinary i don't know maybe that's not the right way to say it but yeah it's just weird well i wonder if part of what it is is now i don't, I don't want to truly create a dichotomy per se but at least in in my life and in my experience, spirituality and religion were like big parts of my growing up. And the religion comes from my mom's side of the family. She was raised very Catholic. Abuela was a very, very strict Catholic. And so the religious side I I ended up getting from my mother, though my mother is not Catholic. She had her own journey. I had my own journey. But I feel like, generally speaking, in Latinx, Latina culture, spirituality and religion play such big roles, whether it is some form of Christianity that is, you know, maybe it's truly Catholicism or, or some other denomination, or maybe it's, maybe that's a veneer to uh, cover up indigenous beliefs, as is very common, or maybe it's some other type of religion or, or spirituality where it's just much more embedded um, into how we're raised and how we understand the world. And so I'm I'm curious to know about your experiences with spirituality and religion. Yeah, so I born, raised, still identify as Catholic. Like I attend a Catholic school from. Was it kindergarten? Okay, I'm going to go with kindergarten. That's where I'm going to, I'm just going to mm-hmm. take the little flag there. Kindergarten all the way through high school. So I went to an all girls Catholic high school over here in, right outside of LA. 
And I think that that, like, really, I really do think that that, like, plays a part in it. Like, we grow up, or I guess personally me, like, I grow up, like, hearing all of these stories about, like, saints and, you know, miracles and, like, uh, objectively magic powers. Like, you know, like, that's mm-hmm. just, like, something that, like, culturally, spiritually is sort of ingrained. And so it wasn't until, like, I went to, I went to college. I was still a religious um, college, but it was the first time I'd been like out of a Catholic atmosphere. And so many of my friends were like, "Oh my god, that's like magic. That's like mm. it's not like actually like religion. Like that's weird." You know, mm. like I, I didn't have like so so much of that. There was still some pushback. You know, then I definitely think that there is a little bit of pushback for Catholicism because mm-hmm. <laughs> the aesthetics of Catholicism, I think, are just yeah. like so like strange. Like I studied yeah. abroad in Italy for a couple of months and like people who weren't Catholic studying in Italy, like we walk into a, like a cathedral or something and there'd be like some bones of some saints, like in a casket. And I was like, yeah, it's, there's just some bones. And it's mm-hmm. just something that just seems like weird if you don't grow up in that atmosphere. Cause like for mm-hmm. me, that seems like totally normal and just like the, the, but again, I guess that's sort of like the magical realism element that we were talking about. Like it's, mm-hmm exists and it's there and for me it feels totally normal but I, I understand how like other people look at it and they're like yeah that's some some interesting stuff going on there <laughs> was this college you went to was it you said it was a religious college was it a protestant religious college so i went to pepperdine so it was church of christ okay not to be confused with united church of christ yes. those different. are two very different very different <laughs> very different denominations <laughs> we we have have had to make that clear I say we but like people in the UCC have had to make that clarification sometimes like Church of Christ is very different so if you're looking for United Church of Christ make sure that you that the you is very important <laughs> yeah and Pepperdine was sort of like this is from other people that were there but it was like kind of considered a little bit like the black sheep of some of the more religious colleges like it was considered hmm. like the weird hippie liberal California college which wow. is so funny because then whenever I talk to anybody who like didn't go to any sort of religious affiliated college, they're like, yeah, no, that was still like a like very religious college. So it's sort of it's just strange to see like internal versus external, like how people perceive the atmosphere. Because like when I was there, like I didn't necessarily feel like it was as <laughs> other people perceive it to be. But afterwards, looking back on it, I could definitely you know see how other people outside viewed it, which is the interesting thing. I know exactly what you're talking about because I went to a small college called Eastern University, um, and it's it's kind of the same thing where for a Christian college, it's uh-huh. pretty liberal because you're not required to go to chapel, and they have chapel, but you're not required to go. And they didn't; they're not as strict about keeping the men and the women apart. There are rules for dorm halls and your dorm rooms but other than that like nobody cares and there's there's all kinds of fun uh, like visitation rules and which is like when you're there in that environment it's just like okay that's pretty reasonable but then you try to explain that to somebody who mm-hmm. like has and they're like you're a, you're adults and you had to have like rules that a that a boy couldn't be in your room past a certain hour like what are you five you're but you're but you're 18 19 20 years old you're and like, oh no you don't, no you don't realize that that's weird until you leave that environment and have done any sort of like deconstruction around the, around that morality. And then you're like, you know, there's a reason why a lot of us uh, have 
a very interesting baggage to to work oh, through. Yeah. Oh yeah, <laughs> and I think that that's like it's so funny because like at Pepperdine it was like a dry campus, which I didn't think yep. was like strange. And then you know, like obviously once I was past twenty one, and I was like, I just want to like have some wine and like watch a mm-hmm. Marvel movie with my friends. Like we couldn't do that on campus. And so it was always like a matter of like trying to figure out like what was going on. And it's like, that was always difficult. <laughs> and I mean, definitely with the co-ed separation, like at, at Pepperdine, it wasn't, it wasn't as, as strict definitely, but like our freshman year dorms, we, we lived pretty much like in groups of 50. So like every house was alternate. Like it was a girl's house, boy's house, next house. So it was like, mm-hmm. we all lived on the same like area, mm-hmm. but it was people also like, oh, you don't, you didn't have like Greek life at Pepperdine. I was like, well, if you're living with like 50 girls in one house for a full mm-hmm. year and you have like a, like objectively yeah. it was the same thing as like Greek housing <laughs> without any sort of like social life or partying or drinking or anything else. But it's just, yeah, it's, it feels normal. And then you leave and you talk to people about it and then you're like, oh, maybe it wasn't fully normal. Yeah. Yeah. And Oh, oh my gosh, there's there's so many things. Well, it, it's funny because at least in my experience, I feel like on the one hand, we had we had these rules in place, but then on the other hand, I happen to have RAs that like would break the rules for the right reasons. Like uh my the RA that I had, I think it was either my no, I think it was my senior year. And she was a year below me, actually. And so there's that part of the beginning of the year where the RAs like gather everybody in the hall and say, okay, these are the rules and all that. And I remember my uh, my RA that year, she sat us down and she kind of she kind of looked at us and she said, so I got my bartending license over the summer. Don't give me a reason to search your room and I'm not going to search your room. So then my roommate and I, we just kept screwdrivers like in our in our mini fridge. We it was Eastern is a dry campus, too. But like, who cares? Like we. Yeah. As long as we weren't being loud or like destroying property or like pretty much giving the RAs any sort of reason to have to do a search, then, you know, my RA was going to like not, she was going to leave us alone because she's like, I don't care to police people on on that level. I also know, uh, I, I have a friend who she was one of the first openly trans students at Eastern while she was there. Um, and I think actually she she began her transition like sometime in her maybe like sophomore or junior year. I don't I don't quite remember. But in any case, I, I think I remember her saying that her RA, who was an RA of a male hall, would let her break the visitation rule of having her door closed when certain other people who were harassing her were around in the hall and one of her cis female friends was like also in her room with her yeah. so like the ra like he was breaking the rule to say okay like this is something that you need to do to feel safe and so i don't like i don't care and i'm not going to write you and, up for that so. and that's the thing with like some of those rules that are obviously like antiquated feels like not even the right word to say but like out of touch like just some of those words some of those rules that were enacted like we definitely didn't have to have like at a certain I mean, I know that it used to be like the open door, like all that mm-hmm. situation. Yeah. I had already gotten rid of that by the time that I got there. But I still remember like even one of my friends in our freshman suite, like her boyfriend went to Cal State Long Beach, which was like an hour away. It wasn't that long. But every time he'd come to visit, like oftentimes he'd come at night and he'd have to like, I we'd either have to find him a room to spend the night in because he couldn't even sleep on our couch in our, in our like common room area. And there's like mm-hmm. eight of us that were in there. And so it was just like hard because every week we needed to like, 
like ship him out to like one of our guy friends to like figure out who he can match with and it does feel ridiculous if you're like out of town guests or like something like that like obviously like where there's another situation in terms of gender like there's so many other things where those rules just won't work and i just don't think that often again another another systemic issue of like these colleges and upper university level decision makers like just not being in touch with like what actually like human being people need that are like the actual residents in their college yeah and it's it's hilarious because these rules also assume that there's no way that anybody would be gay oh of so, course not that's that's so, not that, that's not even an option right 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 so it's hilarious though because if you're a lesbian at a christian college with visitation rules you can have your girls over in your room with the door closed and the lights off and you can have a blanket over you. And like, who's going to write that up? But if you have a boy over and and the door <laughs> is... Within 50 uh, feet of your, of your room. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. And if you're... Alarm will go off. Yeah, and, if, and you can't, you can't like be under the same blanket. Like the boy cannot be under the same blanket as you and the light, the big overhead light in the dorm room must be on. Like not just your Christmas lights hanging on. Like, man, it, it's just... Um, Oh yeah. But, oh no. When when your girls are over, shut that shut that door. Turn that light off. <laughs> Nothing's gonna happen. Nothing at of course, all. Of course not. <laughs> it's it's funny because I actually did know of a, of an open lesbian couple that went up to the administration and they said, "Hey, we're a couple, and so we're gonna apply visitation like to ourselves. I guess to try to stay as in in good graces as possible with the rules while being yeah. out. And this, I mean, this was like you know 2010 ish. So at the time it was like, wow, look at them, you know, playing by the rules still and having such integrity. But then looking back at it now, I'm thinking about it and it's like, man, how sad that really is. Yeah. 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 And, but you were, you were saying before though, about being a Catholic um, in this environment. And it actually reminds me of something I saw and experienced too at my Protestant Christian college, which is that there absolutely is hostility towards Catholics and Catholicism. And that is an accepted hostility. Yeah, it, It's an acceptable hostility. And I specifically remember it, it was so interesting. My senior year, we had this just in, in the microcosm of this Protestant Christian college, there was such strong solidarity between the Catholics and the gays on campus. Oh, that's awesome. So so number, number one, because, well, at least uh, among my, my circle, I I had, I had two friends in college who were both very strong Catholics, very active Catholics, and very much like proud of having come from, from this tradition and also having an experience of like being in class and professors completely shitting on Catholic ideas of transubstantiation and completely misrepresenting it. And, and like, you know, making the cannibalism jokes and, uh, mm-hmm. and and all of that and that being totally okay for a professor to go and tirade a student um, to, to do that. So uh, and that was one of my friends and I had and that was one of the two friends that, that I had. And those two friends decided to revive the campus's Newman Club, which is like the Catholic club. And both of those two friends also happened to be either in the LGBTQ community themselves already, or they were very, very strong allies. And so they were already attending the uh, LGBTQ club meeting that we had. And so it ended up being that when the, the LGBT club met, 
Newman Club just had the same space like right after the LGBT club did. And so we would all show up for the LGBT club and then we would stick around for the Catholic club. And like, I love that. It, it was, it was such a vibe. I, I loved it, but it was so interesting because even, even more than being hostile toward LGBTQ folks, it was a little bit more publicly acceptable to be hostile toward the Catholics. Um, yeah. I, I heard all sorts of dumb remarks from people in, in my classes and, and things like that. I mean, not, not a ton, but just like, as if you're going to be talking down on anybody, it seemed the most acceptable to talk down on the Catholics in that environment, in my experience of that environment. Yeah. And I think like the interesting thing for me is like this, this may be just, I can chalk it up to like me being slightly oblivious, but like, I honestly personally didn't ever experience like any sort of outward like hostility or remarks. Like I do have some of my best friends who like have told me like, oh yeah, when I was growing up, like I was told that like Catholics were like devil worshipers and like, mm. like obviously like, I don't even know, like other, I anything, <laughs> so many other comments. But mm. I, it was kind of like, I definitely had an interesting experience because like I, I went to like an extremely liberal high school, like my high school experience were like, there were some nuns on campus, but they were all like very, like I, this is, they were Jesuit, like it was a Jesuit based. And so it was like mm -hmm. very, very like open, accepting. like there were also a lot of like Muslim students who were at our Catholic high school. I mean, they were, it was just like so different. I also think I always, always like really do chalk it up to like being right outside of LA and like being mm -hmm. in a very liberal atmosphere. So like for me growing up liberal Catholic, definitely like a different experience from growing up mm -hmm. conservative or even traditional Catholic because when I went mm -hmm. to Pepperdine like I personally like didn't normally feel totally accepted in the Catholic club or group on campus like I wasn't mm -hmm. super active in it because oftentimes just like our <laughs> vibes morals just like everything I didn't really yeah. like mesh so well with some of the other um, kids who were in that group and so it was something where like I my spirituality sort of had to like shift and change to something that went from being like really communal and the fact that like everybody was actively in that experience with me to something that I had to like really go internal and sort of figure it out on my own because I didn't necessarily have so much of that aspect. I think I got a little bit more comfortable with like spirituality in general and understanding, you know, like everybody is on a path of their own. But yeah, it was really interesting. And another thing you were talking about this earlier, is like Pepperdine didn't even have a queer club on campus until I want to mm -hmm. say like after I left. We were, they were mm -hmm. trying to get it founded when we left. And there were a couple of kids in my grade in the year below me that were really actively like pushing to have some sort of even just like, like context or commentary conversation, like regarding the fact that like, obviously like there are like queer students on campus and like who would like a community, like to have that experience and like, it just wasn't happening. So I know it's changed mm -hmm. since then, but yeah, it was something that like, I wish that we'd had something like that, because there were so many of my friends who were really wanting to have that sense of community and like, they couldn't find it at all. Mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. is Really, really sad. But yeah, I was definitely more the, the liberal spaces on campus too, because I was in um, English and creative writing, which were mm -hmm. probably two of yeah. the most liberal spaces that I could possibly be. And then I was uh, on the journalism staff. So I was consistently like doing research and, and writing news stories. Like I remember my senior year, I wrote this huge expose because the um, university had made one at like, it was a, a program that we had called dance and flight. And it was like a portrayal of one of the, one of the choreographers had something with like 
a same-sex relationship portrayed on the stage and it was like mm-hmm. the they had to like scrap the whole dance number and so that was like mm-hmm. one of those things where like i remember that was like was it 2017 mm-hmm. yeah 2017 and so it was like that i don't know it was just it was hard but i feel like i was consistently like always trying to shine light and obviously like spreading awareness and and trying to utilize like my little little spaces that i had on on campus with like any sort of control but it, it's mm-hmm. really it's it's hard i mean again we're talking i feel like we just keep coming back to like these huge systemic issues it's like <laughs> impossible to break down but i feel like we're like we're, we're grassroots trying to like fight the power <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely and so so this is making me think of like a this is just something that will be fascinating for me personally as I like whenever I'm ready to query my um, my current novel that I'm writing querying means that uh, for trying to traditionally publish and traditionally publishing means traditional publishing means that your book is published by a big publishing house or big or small publishing house and it's likely that you can go to the store and find your book in the bookstore that's traditional publishing in order to do that you have to send a query to a literary agent and there's all this whole process but Mm -hmm. i i explain that because with publishing being an industry and having its own issues with white supremacy and just the the dominance of white people in positions of power to make decisions about what stories get told and what stories get put out there. My novel that I'm working on very heavily deals with a lot of Christian theology and theological themes, but also in a very queer way. And also one of my uh, characters is Latina. And so I am just wondering, I'm almost expecting this response from, you know, from agents and from publishers saying like, well, how can this, but this, this is queer, but it's affirming of religion. And that's not, that's problematic. Or you like, you know, you know what I'm, what I'm getting at? Like, I feel, but yeah. I feel like they're, like, they're actually, especially for Latinx people, like pretty much everybody that I've talked to on this podcast, if they're not currently religious right now, they had such a strong upbringing in some type of religious tradition. And a lot of the people that I've had on on this show are queer in some way. And sometimes I feel like there's this narrative that that a queer story is inherently in, always in tension with, uh, in, in negative tension with being religious. And that's almost a, an expectation of what a queer narrative is going to do. I have yet to read a, a queer narrative a queer like book that deals with christianity in a way that is satisfying to me yeah it tends to be like oh sort sort of in the background like oh this there was this pastor who said this bad thing or there was this pastor who was pretty cool about it and then that's it like it there's yeah. no when there's such richness to like pull in especially for for science fiction and fantasy like oh my goodness it's a it's a treasure trove in my opinion but it's just like it makes it makes me wonder what publishing thinks a Latinx religious story that is queer is supposed to look like versus what it actually is going to be. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on on that as well or any of the same curiosities because it seems like sometimes it's like how many people really do have a similar uh, background or experience with this as I do? Like, am I just, you know, is this going to be too much or, or too weird? But then I also suspect I get into conversations like this and it turns out, well, actually a lot of people 
maybe more, much more people than I think are kind of in that same place and would be creating that same story. But then publishing has a, has a mind of its own. So what, what are, what are your thoughts about all that? And I feel like, I think it just like boils down to the fact that like publishing always wants like what they imagine a narrative to be. They're like, this narrative needs to fit like this bubble or like it needs to fulfill like whatever the like this little list that I have. And like, that's the only narrative that it, this story can be. And you're like, life isn't like that. Like people don't fit into nice, neat little contained boxes without any sort of like questions or trauma or like anything. And so I think that that's, I mean, yeah, I'd like completely agree with you. Like as somebody who's been like reading in genre work for so long, like honestly, since I was like a very young, like I feel like portal fantasies is what I really started with when I was like very, very little. And then mm -hmm. from there, I've just like maneuvered all over the place, but there's still so much of this, I don't even know. Like, I feel like I don't even know like what to call it, but it's just like what we're talking about where publishing does only want these very specific narratives that are so neat. And it's like, you either have to view something as like good or bad, or like this experience as something that happened or is, and it's just, it just doesn't work like that. So mm -hmm. I'm definitely, definitely with you. Like I, I, yeah, it's, <laughs> I feel like it's just, a lot and there's so much that we, we want I think publishing is starting to slightly figure it out like they're starting mm -hmm. to figure out that like people want more I don't know if messiness is the right word but with like more mm -hmm. authenticity or like more like realistic mm -hmm. stories in which case like you can't always just say you know, one thing is one and one thing is another like I don't think that it is mm -hmm. as easy as that I think publishing is finally maybe starting to get the hint that uh, readers want something different than what has been historically written for how many hundreds of years, but a, mm -hmm. long, a long time, mm -hmm. a long, long time. <laughs> and, and that's what I think is so cool about not only these Latina anthologies that, you know, you and I are in, but also the, the other anthologies that you're working on. I think that in a lot of the indie press and, and small press spaces is, is really where we're seeing most uh, of that and and hopefully it can become the case you know that people can more people can build their careers by getting these types of opportunities and and that way more people can be able to tell stories yeah. and be able to to show that like yeah actually people do want to read these kinds of stories and that these stories can be really enjoyable and can offer a lot to people yeah and i think that that's like I'm I'm completely with you like Indian small presses right now are just so on top of it like all of the anthologies that I'm working on right now well okay most of the anthologies that I'm working on right now have been indie or small press publishing like right now I have a couple out or out on submission with some more bigger traditional publish publishers but mm -hmm. every and every single press that I've worked with so far has just been so excited about like the stories that we have all the contributors like championing champion championing there we go that's the word. Mm -hmm. all of our our work and our stories and like really wanting to like carve out a space for us to like be able to discuss some of these things and so like i have a few that are coming out next year which are not specifically bipoc mm -hmm. but also you know inner like intersectionality across the board so like Mm -hmm. Obviously, like queer rep, uh, neurodivergent rep, chronically mm -hmm. ill rep, like immigrant rep. Like I tried to just 
open some of them up as broadly as possible because like, I didn't want all of all of my anthologies to only necessarily be BIPOC rep. But it, it was just something that I've always felt really passionately about that, that wanting to sort of provide these spaces even for identities, which like, I personally, I am I'm not like still being an ally in every possible way to all these other cultures and communities and marginalized people, because I think across the board, all of our voices deserve to be heard. And if I can even be a part of that in some way of just like amplifying some of these stories, especially historically in like genre spaces, which have been majority white voices in the past, like especially white male voices beyond romance. I think it's just something that's really interesting because I mean, all of the stories that I've been reading for all of the contributors, which I mean, between all my anthologies, it's easily over a hundred people now. Mm. Like every story, no matter is so different. I think that's me mm-hmm. sitting here looking at even just like our Latinx anthologies and sitting here mm-hmm. going, so many publishers are like, oh, I already have like a like a Mexican author that I'm publishing, and I'm like, like even just in these anthologies, like all of these stories are so different, like yeah. so like worlds apart, different, and the publishers still can't figure that out. And I just I don't know. I'm like, how? <laughs> Look at all these stories. Look at all of these amazing writers who are out there just like begging for a chance to even be considered and like their stories are amazing and like well written and uh, could be absolutely amazing and yet we're still not given the opportunities that others are yeah that was a long tangent I'm sorry (laughs) no no because here because here's the thing I I agree with that and it just pinpoints the I mean even just considering the people who could claim the identity Latinx we're talking about like 25 different countries and that's just the countries then there is the diasporas from all those countries and it's like you're really gonna say that oh i already have my my like one latinx book here and it's like okay you what you have is one latinx book even just just the other day, um, the other day as of this recording, we were having a, a team meeting for Encuentros Latinx, and we were talking about some uh, some Good Friday stuff that we're thinking about doing and having like a representation of or trying to have representation of people from different uh, races and cultures having a chance to read or share something artistic in this sacred space that we're making. And, you know, we made the the joke like, oh, so it's not just all Puerto Rican because we lean heavily Puerto Rican. I feel like the Puerto Rican diaspora is like huge. <laughs> like most of the people on even on this podcast have happened to be Puerto Rican. I like I don't intentionally um, <laughs> seek, seek that out. But so it's a little bit of a quip, uh, a little bit of a, of a joke. But then, you know, somebody pointed out like, like, oh, yeah, you know, we're joking about this. But Chicago, Puerto Rico, Puerto Rican is different from Florida, Puerto Rican and is different like the dia- and diaspora is different from the island and first generation like, so even just within talking about one diaspora from one country, you can have like several different iterations of like what that type of narrative could could even be. And it's just like just just this idea of like really stepping away from the singularity of an entire culture or or of a of an experience that is just so important and I and I think anthologies are such a like very I don't know if visual is the right word, but it it's such a, a clear example of that because you can actually like see the concept of plurality just in what an anthology is to begin with. 
Yeah. And and I think that that is what's so great about anthologies is that they can you can really just like literally see in the structure and of how those books come together. And it's like, yeah, you have all of these stories that are fitting under this label. And like, look at how this is just a, a taste of the multitudes that really exist. Yeah. And I think that that's just like, it's almost like a little sampling. And I feel like mm-hmm. anthologies are a really, really easy way to like showcase to, pu- I feel like almost being like shipping some of these anthologies out to publishers and being like, look at the scope of these stories. And for mm-hmm. almost all of these anthologies, like I'm publishing for everyone, like between like 13 to, and then like my, my Gothic horror anthology is 24. So like between mm-hmm. 13 to 24 stories and like for every like, like most of the time I've had hundreds of submissions for every anthology and mm-hmm. every single submission has been different. Like, even if they're doing something like, I think for one of the anthologies that I had, there were like five or six different like retellings, reimaginings of La Llorona. And mm-hmm. like every single time, like no matter if it was the same story, like, or the same like source text, like every mm-hmm. single iteration was completely different. And I think that that's the difference is that, again, like no matter what the story is, it's going to be told differently every single time, no matter who it is. And so I almost mm-hmm. feel like I want to use these anthologies and send them to publishing to be like, look at the breadth and scope here. And like, how can we not like just figure it out? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. There is there's so much more space. And I mean, they figured it out for white authors, like how many white authors can publish the same story or retelling it as somehow it's different for them every single time. But if there is more than like, three you know uh, south asian or latinx or like black authors mm-hmm. on an agent's list it's like overwhelming mm-hmm. i just i feel like that would be a whole other conversation but it is something that i think it, i i'm just gonna leave it as that yeah. at that and just yeah <laughs> and my uh my comment that i'll just uh, leave out there is that uh, american dirt got a six-figure advance uh-huh. so <laughs> you want to that just the best what? latinx rep that we've seen forever it's just end all be all we don't need any other books right we already have american dirt right <laughs> <laughs> for my poor confused listeners just go to google uh and look up american dirt and uh, do some some reading and research over over that what i what i would love to get into now lauren is if you could lay out for us again what you what you're working on what you have coming out like in as clear of a of an order as you're yeah. able to uh, so that people can know what to be on the lookout for yeah so i have a uh bipoc gothic horror anthology releasing from haunt publishing um, which is a scottish press that's releasing may 5th so very soon um and then the latinx anthology that taylor has been talking about that we've mostly been talking about um the ya and the adult anthology will be releasing in october dates to be determined for that but october 2022 and then i have three unannounced as of this conversation i'm not too certain Mm -hmm. when they're going to be announced coming out in 2023 and then other than that i have a a lot of other anthologies that are currently in the works including a fairy tale retelling and including a a trope anthology based off of um you know just writing tropes in general so those are a couple that i'm co-editing i also have another romance one and another that i am in the 
planning stages with um, with another um, young adult author as well. But yeah, those are the wider anthology projects that I'm working on. Other than that, I'm actively querying a bunch of other projects, including a picture book and a young adult novel, a short story collection, and a poetry book of my own. So I, as somebody who champions genre, like I consistently like write in almost every genre. So mm-hmm. I am all over the place in terms of publishing. So and finding an agent who, who represents everything is going to be a difficult task. Mm-hmm. So where can people uh, keep up with you then on what are your social medias? People can follow uh, so you and learn about my, these. My major social media that I use is Twitter and that's at Lauren Gilmore 03. And then I also have a specific writing Instagram, which is at Lauren T Davila. Um, and so those are, those are pretty much my, my main sources of of keeping up with me i also have a website which is like laurentdavila.com um and that has most of my information about my anthologies that are coming up along with like i also do like freelance editing and proofreading and beta reading um on the on the side in between all of this and my um coursework because i'm in a phd program so there's also that (laughs) (laughs) oh my gosh i that's that's a lot. Yeah, that, it's that's a, a lot. lot. I feel like um, I never think it's a lot until I like somebody asks me to like lay it all out, and then I I sort of look back at it and I'm like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, a lot of other episodes of this podcast, I'm talking to people that are doing really intense like humanitarian and social justice work, and so in that perspective, sometimes it might seem like, oh, well, this this fiction thing is pretty uh, pretty light, and you know maybe lower stakes comparatively speaking but well especially all this fantasy and, and science fiction stuff but, but man like shouldn't we also have beautiful spaces to expand our imaginations to and, and to dream and to wonder what if and that is the beautiful thing about writing and and storytelling and so with that said Lauren I would love to invite you to introduce a piece of work a piece of writing of your own and to do a brief reading of, of what you've got. So, so tell us about what you have. Yeah. Let me just open up this section. I'm just going to read like a, of a small, like middle section of one of the stories. Um, so right now it's titled on the shoreline and it's going to be published in the Gothic anthology that I was just talking about. Not really going to feel like there's no easy way to like give an intro to the story. So I'll just read the little section that I have. It's like about a page and Uh, a half or so, so it didn't take too, too long. Okay. Two months later, she's still wondering, and Luna wants to love it here. It's an absolutely stunning compound. Mountains on one side of the house and nothing but endless ocean waves to the other. She has time to send in audition tapes, and Silas has given her contacts of the studio. Ethan asks her opinions on his music compositions, and although she knows next to nothing about it, he always thanks her for her input. And it's not just her imagination that he keeps finding reasons to hang out with her beyond just getting to know Rosalie. Morning coffee and surf trips to Zuma and sneaking out to watch the new Marvel movie Silas mocks and the fleeting touch of his fingertips across her hands. But she still can't shake the feeling that they need to run back to Vegas. Well, that is if Rosalie weren't thriving here. Rosalie doesn't seem to feel the chill of the ocean in the morning or the dark shadows that the palm trees cast on her walls and windows. And God, she sure as hell can't hear the constant clicking. The ENT doctor couldn't find anything wrong with her. He said it must have been psychosomatic. But it's all she can hear, crescendoing, especially at night. And tonight, it's almost unbearable. She leaves her room, grabbing her robe before slipping out towards the kitchen barefoot. 
It echoes around her in the dark house. Click. A crash of the waves. Click. Waves. Click. And then she lets out a curse as she stubs her toe, hits the wall in the hallway off the living room. She pauses, waiting to hear if she's woken anyone up. When she doesn't hear anything, she readies herself and continues to the kitchen. Make herself some chamomile tea and convince herself she just hears things. But then she sees the low glow of the light from behind a panel in the hallway that she knocked into. And the girl who's raised on a steady diet of Nancy Drew novels just can't help herself. She pushes the panel aside and enters the small room. It's no bigger than a mudroom stuffed with old movie posters and some broken chairs. But two things catch her eye. One is a portrait leaned up against the far wall. It's a picture of the most gorgeous woman Luna's ever seen in her whole life. It's the epitome of old Hollywood glamour. A woman stands on a red carpet, half in the light of the paparazzi's cameras, half in the shadows. She's in a tight emerald green mermaid dress, red lipstick contrasting with her brown skin and dark hair. One arm is outstretched to the light where a young girl stands a couple of feet away. She's the spinning image of the actress. A small note is taped to the bottom of the frame. Bianca and Miserina. Click. A bright light flashes and Luna throws her hands in front of her face. The outstretched hand of the woman is burned into her vision. Once her sight returns to normal, she glances at the corner where the light came from. She walks over, avoiding the papers and the debris around her feet. She bends down next to the old movie projector, broken into a billion pieces. As she puts her ear right next to it, she hears the click again. Softer, as if the movie project projector is starting up. And then a woman screaming. She runs, slamming the panel door shut behind her. She slips back in bed, hearing the click and the crash of the waves, and all she wants to do is run and never stop. Yeah. Oh, what a what a cliffhanger. <laughs> I'm like, that's the middle of the story too. I feel like they threw a lot of characters and stuff yeah. at all, but Yeah, well, but you know what? It makes you interested in keeping tabs on when that anthology is coming out, picking it up once it's published. So there there you have it. Uh, this is such an aside, but the the <laughs> portrait um, description where the, the woman in, in the green dress, I recently read The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo. Evelyn and Hugo. <laughs> I was just like, is this Evelyn Hugo? <laughs> like in my head, I didn't mean it to. I do, I do love that book. I didn't mean yeah. it to be like that, but I feel like it was just like, <laughs> thinking about I think I was just like had seen that a lot on like book talk and like TikTok mm-hmm. coming up and back yeah. and forth and I was like you know I feel like the green like that emerald green dress is like such a big like Hollywood thing like mm-hmm. more so than any other color like I was even trying to like just do some research and I feel like they just always wore green like consistently mm-hmm. so that was what I yeah. went with but I will I will uh, accept the Evelyn Hugo ode there that I didn't mean to write in but it's there <laughs> yeah well well I love it because Evelyn Hugo has a whole thing where she like denies her Latinx identity to like assimilate mm-hmm. and beca- like that. That's a whole other tangent. Yeah. Evelyn Hugo is an amazing book. I I love it. Um, but but like yeah, that is absolutely a part of her narrative too. And this whole like thing of what assimilation does and people who choose assimilation, all all this kind of stuff. But in any case, Lauren, this has been a fantastic conversation. Um, I loved having the very own uh, Twitter's very own anthology queen uh, <laughs> here on the podcast. And thank you so much for sharing about your experiences and, and talking with me. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I, it was, was so fantastic. I really loved it. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. Please rate review and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this. On behalf of Encuentros Latinx, we hope you'll join us on our next Encuentro.